Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible line. If you're joining us for the first time, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions and comments as they study God's Word and they have an issue in their personal life or study or ministry that they would like to discuss. Uh, you can pick up the phone and call us locally. The number is 525-1859-525-1859. We have a number of internet listeners who uh, also like to participate in this hour and if you want to use the 843-525-1859 number you can or you can call us toll free at 877 the call letters WAGP 980 number of people each week email us here directly into the studio and uh the email address directly here to the computer that's in front of Rick is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call locally, you uh, don't necessarily have to go on the air, though we give priority to live callers. But if you're more comfortable in simply dictating your question, we're happy to receive it that way. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and we have many questions, so let's get to them. A listener wants to know, where in the Bible does it say how old the earth is? Well, that's a good question. Um, There's not a particular uh, verse of Scripture that says the earth was created on such and such a day. But there are two key genealogies. Uh, One is found in Genesis 5 and the other is in Genesis 11. And it tells, uh, you know, how old each person, Adam was or whatever, when they fathered children and how old they were when they fathered children and so on and so forth. And so based on the chronology given in the Word of God, uh, it would set the earth at about 6,000 years old. There was a very famous Irish uh, bishop who was in the uh, Church of, not the Church of England, but the Church of Ireland, which was the Anglican Church. His name was Bishop Unger. He was a born-again Bible-believing Christian. And based on his uh, chronologies in the 17th century, he uh, put in one of the early editions of the King James Bible with notes uh, that the world was created uh, on 4004 B.C. I-, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was October like 23rd or something, 4004 B.C. But, you know, probably pretty pretty close. Um, it may- maybe he had it to the right day. There were other contemporaries uh, even before him. Isaac Newton said the earth was created 4000 B.C., uh, great scientists of his day. Kepler said 3992. So the idea that the world is now billions of years old, even in the realm of science, is a relatively new thought. But forget science for a second. Just reading the scriptures itself, you don't get the concept of billions and billions of years. Now, of course, one of the issues of dispute 
is uh, how science dates the world. And they have some, uh, you know, preconceived ideas that they carry, I think, uh, to the table when they use radiometric uh, dating and other methodologies that they employ in dating the earth. But if you believe that when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age, then that can change everything. So if the day Adam was created, if there was a doctor there to examine him, he would have said, well, I, I don't know, he's 20, he's 40, I don't know how old he looked, but he wasn't an infant. And when God created the trees in the garden, they were already fruit-bearing trees. They weren't little saplings. Add to that the great flood. Uh, science can demonstrate that under high amounts of pressure quickly exerted, things like coal and oil that would take thousands and thousands of years to uh, generate could be produced in a short period of time. And so if you believe in a worldwide flood, that that would then that would dramatically change uh, the methodology for, for dating that current science uses. But they need billions and billions of years to be able to sustain the theories that they advocate. Uh, the problem with evolution, dating the world at billions of years, is you have death before sin. And God's word is very clear that when sin entered into the world, Death came with sin. So you have this fossil record that's millions and millions for some billions of years old that precedes the fall, where God says, no, the first death didn't come into the universe until after sin entered into the world, and with sin came death. And so um, it's a whole different way of looking at life and looking at the world. But if you want to X God out of the picture— and you want to obliterate him from your thought life. And that's what rebellious man does. Uh, knowing that God exists is seen in his creation, his divine attributes, his eternal power, and his nature. Paul argues in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so they suppress the truth that God has revealed. No praise, no thanks over God and his creative work, and so they come up with other theories. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, most conservative Bible scholars would say that the world is about 6,000 years old. Now, a lot of Christian theologians and some pastors want to get in bed with science in our day and, and make themselves and their teachings fashionable, but we don't need to compromise to please the world. And it just doesn't work. And it's always a point of failure. And some have gone to the extremes of saying, well, you can believe in evolution in the Bible at the same time that God used the process of evolution to create the world. And so they advocate theistic evolution. Impossible if you take the Bible at its plain reading, because it just violates principle after principle, some of which I've already stated. So it's a great question. I appreciate it. And um, if you want to read from the science point of view on this, uh, a couple of works that are notable. Uh, one is called The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris. The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris. It's a classic work. It's not an easy read, uh, but it's an excellent work. His son, um, has written some books that are a little more palatable and easier to read for the layman who doesn't have much of a scientific background. So any books by Morris on creationism, either the father or the son would be excellent. Or you could go to Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham's ministry, and I think find some very, very helpful thoughts 
uh, in looking at the science from a different perspective. But purely on a theological ground, biblical basis, uh, the world's about 6,000 years old. And that really puts uh, a whole different time frame into uh, the picture that we are facing in our day. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us, as this person has. Actually, they called in their question, but you can email us at tbl at net. They've heard a pastor say the modern-day holy of holies is the pulpit of the church. Is this scriptural? Well, I'm not sure what that pastor meant when he said that, but uh, literally, well, no, it's not literally scriptural. Uh, The Holy of Holies was a literal place in the tabernacle, which was kind of a tent-like structure that was a portable worship center as the Jews uh, wandered for 40 years. And then as they went into the promised land and uh, eventually passed through the time of the judges and the kings came and... Saul came and then David came and David said one day, look, I'm living in a beautiful palace and God's living in a tent. It just doesn't seem right that, you know, um, we should just have a, a, a tent for the worship center of the living God, the place where God would literally appear in his Shekinah glory was called the Holy of Holies. And so they built a temple and so forth. But um, so it's a certain section within the tabernacle or within the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on Yom Kippur, Yom being the Hebrew word for day, Kippur atonement, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in and he would put blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. In the Ark were three objects, the budded rod of uh, Aaron that represented the leadership that God had provided, which Israel had rejected, Uh, the jar of manna that represented the provision, the daily provision that God had for his people, which they also rejected. If you remember, they said, we hate this bread, we loathe this manna. And third, there was the second set of tablets. The first set was destroyed by Moses because of the idolatry of the people. And the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, represented God's standards uh, for his people of holiness, and they had rejected that. And so when the priest laid the blood on the top of the mercy seat uh, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is hilasterion. It's translated propitiation. It's the propitiatory seat. Uh, When he laid the blood on the top of the ark, when God looked down, he did not see his holy standards that Israel had violated. All he saw was the blood of the unblemished animal that pictured ultimately, of course, the blood of Christ, who is our propitiation, the New Testament teaches. So to call the pulpit the Holy of Holies, I think, is to do a little bit of injustice to the Word of God. But if he means that the pulpit is a place that is to proclaim truth, well, great. But let's just say what we mean rather than to use analogies and pictures that don't fit and could end up dismissing what God's Word plainly says. So I hope that helps. It's a good question. All right, another listener called in this question. In Hebrews 6, verse 18, what are the two immutable things God is speaking about? Hebrews 6, let me just turn there. Um, 
Hebrews 6 is an interesting chapter. If you remember, it is uh, a chapter that is calling the people of God to press on to maturity. Uh, He had just said at the end of chapter 5, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, for solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have trained their senses or have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so these believers had regressed. They had become dull of hearing. And there are Christians like that in the world today. They just don't have spiritual ears to hear. And they should be progressing and maturing, but they've regressed. And it's like they're just babes in Christ. And so he says, look, leave the elementary teaching about the Messiah, about the Christ, and press on to maturity. So he's not talking about salvation, and Hebrews 6 is often used to say, well, maybe this passage teaches you can lose salvation. He's not talking about that at all. In the context, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial added almost a millennium after the Bible is completed to help us to find our way around. The context is he's talking about, you know, people maturing in their faith, And so with that said, um, let me answer your question on verse 18. I'm going to back it up and start reading in verse 13. It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, and that's the question, what are the two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement we who have fled to refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. So um, God, the Bible says, interposed with an oath. And he says in the same way, verse 17, in the same way as what? Well, like men swear by someone greater than themselves. You know, it used to be when I was a child and uh, you were making a promise to someone else, we'd say, let's shake on it. And would shake hands. And what that basically meant was I really am purposing to do what I said. Or in a more dramatic way, a man enters into a courtroom and he puts his hand on the Bible and he raises his right hand. And he says, I promise to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. He's swearing by God, someone greater than himself. Uh, Every president since Washington has put his hand on the Holy Bible, swearing to defend the Constitution of the United States. They're swearing by someone greater than themselves. And of course, our whole system of government can only work and function when men fear God. If you don't fear God, it just doesn't work. Um, And so uh, because men fear God, when they put their hand on the Bible uh, in a court of law or whatever the situation may be, it had some meaning to it. Well, God is the greatest, so God can't swear by someone greater than himself. But he swore by himself. Uh, why did he even do that? Well, to, to, to really hone a promise that he had made to the Jewish people. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you back in verse 13. So you can't isolate verse 13 from your question that you're asking. 
the whole flow of the context, remember, is here's some people who had been stuck in immaturity. And one of the reasons is because some decisions they were making in order to escape persecution. If you're a Hebrew, a Jewish believer in that day, then in essence, what you were saying was Jesus is the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, then I am going to dismiss the Old Testament sacrificial system as antiquated because it just pictured what Messiah would do. Well, not all Jews believe that. He came to his own, his own received him not. So for the most part, his own received him not. Now, there were thousands of Jews who came to faith in Jesus in the first century. Remember, every writer of the New Testament, um, you know, all the apostles, that is, are, are Jews. And they're written under the direction of apostolic authority. Though there are some people who write on their behalf, like Luke, who is not an apostle, but he's writing on behalf of an apostle. And so um, there are many Jews who embrace Jesus, but and some who in the process doing that were ostracized. And so when you come to the end of Hebrews, he will deal with Christians who had been persecuted because they called Jesus Lord. And if you're a Jew in that day, and even in this day, for many Jews to call Jesus Messiah means uh, you're ostracized. Sometimes I, I led a Jewish guy to Christ uh, many, many years ago, Mark Schwartz at Duke University, and his family held a funeral for him. Uh, that's what it meant uh, for him as a Jew to embrace Jesus as his personal Lord. And so in Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith, he tries to put some steel into their spines and, and reminds them of the great suffering that God's people for the ages have suffered because they believed in promises that God made concerning the Messiah. Well, Messiah had been, his promises had been fulfilled, and this promise that God made Abraham, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you, was in reference, if you remember, to the Abrahamic covenant and to the Messiah. And so they patiently waited uh, for that promise. Well, the promise has been fulfilled. And so just as men swear by someone greater than themselves, God to assure man of the infallibility of his word, he swore by himself to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. He interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, well, the two unchangeable things, number one, God's word, that God does what he says, and number two, God's character, that God, who he will later say is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, um, God, uh, by two unchangeable things, his word, which he's just mentioned in his character, namely that it's impossible for God to lie, um, that we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. And so um, those are the two unchangeable things. In verse 19, he goes on then speaks about a, uh, even further strength that we get from Christ who's our anchor. There are many symbols in Christianity in the history of the church, the fish, because ichthus, which is the Greek word for fish, if you take the letters of the word ichthus, uh, they can become, form an acrostic for um, Iesus Christos, Theos, Weos, Soter, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Each letter stands for I, uh, Iesus and so forth and Jesus and uh, so you have the symbols of the cross, of the fish, and one one symbol, uh, the anchor. 
And so in the next verse, it says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters with within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner. So they needed to abandon the Old Testament system of sacrifice, uh, ignore it, and not try to make themselves look Jewish to escape persecution. Because unlike the high priests of the Old Testament, they were not forerunners. They went into the Holy of Holies alone. But uh, Jesus is a forerunner, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he anchors up. You know, in, in ancient days, like today, boats anchor down, but Jesus anchored up. He, he took the anchor and put it in the veil and uh, with his own blood uh, paid for our own sin forever so that we can have a relationship with the, with the living God. Uh, and so you go into the catacombs and you will see uh, anchors on some of the walls. And even if you go to the garden tomb on one of the back walls, there is an anchor uh, that has been carved into the wall. And it's a symbol of what Jesus did when uh, he went into the Holy of Holies and uh, by his own precious blood made an eternal payment for sin. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Richard in Hilton Head emails us, on the Billy Graham radio program you played on Sunday, near the end of the broadcast, Uh, Mr. Graham said that Jesus literally went to hell for us. Please respond. Is this not false teaching? Well, I wouldn't call it false teaching, no. Um, You know, in some of the old confessional creeds um, that have been read through the centuries of the church and given different names, uh, when we speak of the Apostles' Creed, we're not saying the Apostles wrote it, but we're saying this is a summary of apostolic doctrine uh, at the Council of Nicaea, they didn't determine that Jesus was God or determine that he rose from the dead or other crazy things that different fictional books have tried to uh, advocate in, in recent years. Uh, no, they just summarized what the church had already affirmed for several centuries. Uh, but he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was buried, uh, was dead, buried, descended into hell, and on the third day was raised from the dead. And so this whole idea of Jesus descending into hell. Now, he did it not to pay for sin. Um, the Bible is clear that on the cross, the Lord Jesus said, to telestai, uh, which means uh, it is finished. Uh, he paid in full with his own blood on the cross our sin debt. And so Jesus on the cross died not just physically, but he suffered eternally. Uh, as an infinite person, he could accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would need in eternity to pull off. And so there's one time in the whole prayer life of the Lord Jesus when he doesn't call God Father. He says there on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because there on the cross, Jesus is literally severed in his fellowship spiritually for the first time in all of eternity. And we can't even begin to comprehend all that that means. But he suffered a spiritual death as part of the payment for sin. So he died, 
was buried. And the Bible says, for Christ died for sins once for all. This is 1 Peter 3.18, I'm reading. The just, that's him. For the unjust, that's us. Why? In order that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh when he was crucified, but made alive in the spirit. In which? In which what? In which modifies in the spirit. In which in the spirit also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are these spirits now in prison? Well, they were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which eight persons were brought safely through the water. And, um, and so he speaks of the fact that between the time Jesus died and physically rose from the dead, which he will affirm here in verses 21 and 22, and then his ascension to the Father. Uh, In his spirit, between the time his body was laid in that tomb on Friday afternoon before sunset, and between the time early Sunday morning he rose from the dead, he went on a preaching mission. And he preached to some uh, spirits. And this word, I think, is a reference clearly to angelic beings and to some angelic beings that lived during the time of Noah. Why did he do that? Well, because the Bible says in Colossians that at the cross, Jesus made a spectacle of uh, all the principalities and powers. He's there referring to the Apostle Paul to the uh, angelic, fallen angelic world, that Jesus made a a spectacle of them by his cross. Um, and that's that's a powerful truth to really think about. It says, um, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was uh, in which was hostile to us, he, the Lord Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about fallen angels here in Colossians 1.15. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them uh, through him. And so God made a public display over all of the fallen angels, with the exception of one category of angels that are described in Second Peter 2, and described in the book of Jude. Um, Let me just read this to you um, from, I'll read the account in Jude. It says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, They're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So there's a group of angels who didn't keep their proper domain. They didn't function the way God had created them to function, but they abandoned that proper abode, the Bible says. And God has them in eternal bonds. So these are unlike the angels described in Daniel 10 or Ephesians 6 that wage war against believers that have freedom in the heavenly realm to fight against God's people and to war against other holy angels. There's a group of angels who didn't keep their proper abode, uh, but are kept in eternal bonds for the judgment of the great day. And what they did is compared to something that the people of Sodom did. Just as, here's the comparison, Jude 1.7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, the people of Sodom, in the same way as these, 
these angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So somehow angels committed some heinous sex crime like the people of Sodom did as uh, they sought after strange flesh because it's unnatural for a woman to be with a woman, for a man to be with a a man. God's word is very clear. Uh, Now, whatever they did, obviously the people in the New Testament era understood and the church fathers understood. They understood this, as did the ancient Jews to refer to a sin that's recorded in Genesis 6 with the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, cohabitated with the daughters of men. Um, angels cannot uh, cohabitate with other angels and have angel babies, but angels, when they take on human form, they're always pictured as male in the Bible. They have the capacity to potentially leave their proper abode, and one group of angels did this. The men of Sodom. Uh, recognized that those two angelic visitors to Lot's house were were in real male bodies. That's how they came, as angels. And they potentially wanted to have a physical relationship with those men. Um, so some angels did some things they shouldn't have done, and God judged them. They're an eternal bond. So Jesus went on a preaching mission between his death on Friday in his resurrection on Sunday morning, and he preached to a group of angels. And so he descended into hell. Now, I don't know what Billy Graham said, but you could say it's like Jesus went to hell for us, but he did that on the cross. But the descent into hell, literally, which Jesus did make, was not as a payment for sin. It was to preach to a category of fallen angels. That's a long answer, but I hope it helps. And you might want to listen to my messages on Genesis 6 if you want a more in-depth and detailed answer. All right, 525-1859, toll-free 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener asks, in John 5, verses 45 through 47, Jesus told the Pharisees that they had put their hope in Moses. Yet he says, but if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. How could a person have their hope in something and yet not believe it? And I wonder if it's not a picture of today that there are many Christians putting their hope in Jesus Christ and yet not believing in Christ. Well, it's a good question. Let me just uh, turn there, if I might. Uh, here to John chapter 5, and, and let me read the text because not everyone listening to me has the benefit of having a Bible in, in front of them. Um, in John 5, and they're referencing verses 45 to 47, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, and whom you have set your hope. For if you'd believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in my writings, how will you believe my words? So they should have believed the writings of Moses because in the writings of Moses, God gave very clear pictures of the work of Messiah. Uh, The work of Messiah is pictured even in the ark where there is one ark with three floors, a picture of the triune God, and there's one door because there's one way of salvation. And God shuts the door and God seals in Noah, just as when we're saved, uh, God seals us by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And you see in the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, a picture of what Messiah is going to do when Abraham gives his uniquely begotten son. 
uh, you see a picture of Messiah and Jacob's ladder, um, which uh, Jesus reminded us was a picture of himself. You see a picture of Messiah and the works of Moses and the Passover lamb and the manna and the split rock in uh, the serpent up on the pole. Um, so throughout Moses, you have a clear picture of what the Lord Jesus was going to do. And so, I, you know, here, here's, here's one of the things that is mind boggling when you really think about it. The books that are under attack more than any other books in all of the Bible are the books of Moses. Um, and more specifically within that, the first book that Moses wrote, Genosios, Genesis or Barashit in the Hebrew, in the beginning. It's the book of beginnings. Look, if you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe John 3-16. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. Very clearly, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you can't believe what Moses said, and that's why the devil wants to discredit the creation account. He wants to discredit the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, because if he can discredit that, he can discredit the whole of Holy Scripture. You know, there was a controversy in the Southern Baptist Church in the 60s and 70s over a group of commentaries that had been written, uh, put out on Broadman Press, which is today's Lifeway Books, and um, it was uh, a set of commentaries in the Old Testament. And many of those commentaries that were being put out just denied the the supernatural in the books that were the most controversial were the commentaries that were written on the first five books by Moses. Genesis 1 through 11 was uh, dismissed as history and said, well, it was just parabolical and uh, just taught spiritual lessons, but didn't actually happen. Well, Jesus said it actually happened. And so sometimes people think, well, you know, if God were here on earth today and God did a miracle, then I would believe. And that's not true. Jesus makes it very clear that that's not true. When he was here on earth before, and he literally did miracles, people dismissed the miracles. Uh, some people went so far as to say, well, the miracles were done by Beelzebul. He, he's functioning under the, the power of the evil one. And they writ, wrote Jesus off as, uh, as being an evil person. And so no, people uh, won't necessarily believe because of miracles. If you remember in the parable, and some don't view it as a parable, if it is a parable, it's a unique parable because it would be the only um, parable in the New Testament where someone is actually named, namely Lazarus. But in either case, there's a poor man, Lazarus, who dies, and he goes to Abraham's bosom, an Old Testament metaphor for paradise or what today we would call being with the Lord. In uh, the rich man who dies, he goes to Hades, not because he's rich, but because his riches had captured his heart and he remained in unbelief. And so um, the rich man dies and he's in agony. And um, let me just pick it up. Uh, he, he says, and, and he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted, and you are in agony. By the way, Hades, which is described in this section, continues to exist. Abraham's bosom has been emptied out. Uh, Old Testament paradise has now become New Testament paradise, 
And so today we are absent from the body and we're present with the Lord because sin has been paid for in time and space. But Old Testament Sheol or Hades continues to exist. And so when a man dies lost, he's in the place that Jesus is describing. He's in agony. And then, and besides all this, Jesus in telling the parable says, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house where I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest also they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses. That's the first five books. And the prophets, that's the rest of the Bible. That was one way the Old Testament was summarized. Either Moses and the prophets or Moses and the psalm and the psalms and the prophets or the law, law, the psalms and the prophets, same designations. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if, if, if they won't believe the word of God, which is alive and sharper and active than a two-edged sword that penetrates and pierces the human soul, then they're not going to believe if a miracle is done. In fact, a miracle is done. Lazarus, literally, a Lazarus, let's assume it's a different one, is raised from the dead, and the Jews dismiss it. No one can argue against it. And then the Lord Jesus himself is raised from the dead, and they want to dismiss that as well. So um, anyway, I hope that helps and answers your question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. They, we've just had a ton of email and uh, questions that are, are sent here to TBL at the Bible line at net. So it's good we're, we're knocking off some of these because last week we had solid phone calls and didn't get to any of them. So. All right, and I uh, like this individual's name, Christian from Bluffton, says he listens to your radio program every night on his way to work and uh, thanks you for helping him make positive changes in his life. He recently began reading the Old Testament. I have not read any Bible in my life, he writes. My biggest question of the many I still have yet to find an answer is how could Moses and Jesus have skeptics and followers in disbelief after they witnesses the miracles they performed? Well, you kind of answered that. Uh, Jews with Moses, Timothy with Jesus. If I were to see a river turned to blood, a sea parted, or a blind person's vision restored, I don't think I could deny the performer of these miracles of having a divine power. Thank you for all you do. We are all blessed to have someone such as yourself and the support uh, you received to broadcast. Well, again, um, you know, the miracles can be confirmatory to a heart that's open and soft and pliable. But because of the hardness of man's heart, many times people will, in the face of clear, undisputable evidence, they will still mock and ignore what God does. They did that on the day of Pentecost. Many of the Jewish people, a miracle took place. There was a literal noise like a loud rushing wind. Uh, If you've ever heard a tornado, uh, it's a good description to describe it like a freight train that's coming. Um, it might have sounded like a set of 787s being cranked up, and God brought this incredible noise that sounded like a violent rushing wind, but there was no wind, just the noise. And the city is packed with pilgrims, tens of thousands of people, some put it at 2 million, 
And they came to this place to hear what was going on in this city of Jerusalem. And when they came, they saw 120 people come out and resting on each one was a literal physical tongue of fire. What looked like a, a shape like a human tongue, but it was made out of fire. I don't know if it was resting on their head or exactly where it was positioned. The Bible doesn't say. And then another miracle took place in that they spoke previously unlearned languages. Uh, If I only spoke English, but all of a sudden, though I didn't know a word of Chinese, I could speak perfect Chinese and not just Chinese, maybe a certain dialect of Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. That's what these Jews did. 15 different languages slash dialects that they spoke. It was a, a miracle. And when it happened, some of the Jewish people said, well, what does this mean? And um, and Peter uh, responds, but before he does, others mocked and said, well, they're they're obviously drunk. Peter said they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Give me a break. You're not even rational in your thinking. Uh, This is what the prophet Joel said would take place in the last days, and it was a miracle. So in the face of miracles, not everyone responds, and the only explanation is the hardness of man's heart. I'm glad this brother is listening. I'm assuming he's come to faith in Christ. He said he's never read a Bible before until recently, and he lives in in Bluffton. I'll be in Bluffton tonight at our Community Bible Church Bluffton campus. We have one church now that meets in two locations, and if you're looking for a church home— uh, tonight, Tuesday night, uh, we will be in Bluffton at 7.15. Child care is provided. I'll be sharing our core values. And to do that, I share an overview of the whole Bible in about 50 minutes. I grew up attending church every week, but never really read a Bible. And I had bits and pieces of Christianity, but didn't really understand how it all fit together. And then when I saw an overview of the Bible, it was just life-changing for me. Helped me to see where I was and where God wanted to bring me. And so if that's of interest to you tonight, that will be tonight at 715. Our location in our Bluffton campus, if you know Forty Island Road, there is a famous BMW dealership. And behind there, the road that runs adjacent to the BMW dealership is Community Bible Church. And so um, you can meet me there tonight, or I'll be doing the same presentation here Thursday night in Beaufort at our Beaufort campus at 638 Paris Island Gateway. Either case, go to cbcofbeaufort.org. You can type in your address, and it will create a map quest to you right to the location you need to go. Indeed, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at WAGP.net. I might also listen or note that you can also go to uh, communitybiblechurch.us and forward slash locations. Okay. And it'll tell tell you uh, how to get there. All right. Uh, Shirley from Port Royal would like to know whether Paul, the Apostle Paul, was ever married. A friend had this discussion in her Sunday school class and got mixed answers. She would like to know your answer to the question. I don't think Paul was ever married um, simply because of what he records in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
Um, he's talking about beginning in seven one now concerning the things about which you wrote. So the Corinthians wrote him a letter. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it's kind of a hinge verse in the epistle and that he begins to tick off the questions that they wrote to him about and responds by giving God's answers to them. And uh, he says, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have his, her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's uh, dealing with uh, sex within the marriage relationship and reminding them that, listen, uh, your body's not your own. It's your wife's. It's not... Her her body, it's the husband's, and to deprive each other sexually is actually to give the devil an opportunity to bring temptation in. And so God intends for the sex drive to be fulfilled in the marriage relationship. Uh, then he says, um, but I say this by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men, even as I myself am, however, each man has his own gift from God, one in man, one manner and one in another. He said to the unmarried and to the widows, he says, it is good for them if they remain even as I. What does he mean? Unmarried. Paul was unmarried. And of course, he prefaces that statement by reminding them that each man has his own gift from God. So Paul had been gifted for Singleness. Some people call this the gift of celibacy. People, I just taught a uh, course on spiritual gifts. Um, it was on the identification of your spiritual gift and then uh, d- developing your spiritual gift as you implement it in the local church, which is the first and foremost place that every Christian should find their service. When people think of you, they should think of you not first and foremost with serving in some parish church ministry, but first serving in your local church. That's what God's call is on every believer's life. Lay that aside. The gift of celibacy, if we can call it that, is not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God does through a person, but it's more something that God does to a person. And there are some people who are gifted of God Uh, to be celibate their whole life. It's not because they're homosexual or weird or, you know, and we write off some people sometimes. We say, what's his problem? And he's 40 and he's not married. Maybe God wants him to be single his whole life. You ever think about that? Paul says there's a real advantage to it. He will later say in this chapter is, I drop down here, let's see, verse 33. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. His interests are divided, and they should be because God calls them to be divided. And the woman who is unmarried and a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy in both body and spirit. And so he goes on and he says, hey, if God's gifted you to be single, that's not a bad thing because it allows you to give undistracted devotion to the Lord. Verse 35 of that chapter. So there are some people their whole life God will keep single. I remember one day meeting John R.W. Stott, and I didn't know that he was single. And I had read maybe 20 books by him. 
And I often thought, how does he as a pastor have time to crank out all these books? Some pastors do it in that they, you know, take sabbaticals for months at a time or they take a month or two off from preaching and then let someone else preach in their place. And and I was curious and I only found out he was single and that's how he did it. And he, he just died a year or so ago in his uh, late 80s. And, um, and he was able to give an undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom. So Paul describes himself in that matter. Now, I will say to any person who is single, if God hasn't given you a wife, then he will give you self-control. So let me just qualify these statements that Paul makes about the body and not burning with lust and everything else. God will enable you to do that which he's called you to do. But if you are married, you're not to deprive each other And if you are married, you should not necessarily try to marry off some other people whom God may want to be single their whole lives. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, Uh, Macy from Hardyville. Actually, we had one that just got called in a second ago, so we'll go to that one. Uh, This listener would like to know, is there scripture that would address spending money on material possessions, specifically expensive shoes, clothes, hats, etc.? Well, I would say so. Um, You know, the whole idea that we are stewards of our time and our money and our spiritual gifts and other things is the truth that is taught in the Word of God. And sometimes when people think of money, they think of it in terms of a, um, you know, 10%, 90% relationship, that I give 10% to the Lord and the other 90% is mine to do whatever I want to do with it. And that's not what the Word of God says. Uh, The Word of God teaches that it's all God's money, that someday we will give an account for all 100%, not just 10%, but 100%. And the Bible teaches not just giving the tithe, but sometimes the offering. The offering is something above and beyond the 10%, which is a reminder that tithing is not simply an issue of percentages, it's an issue of the heart. And so, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, he's dealing with uh, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And Jesus certainly illustrated that truth about people who sought riches. And he told of a rich man, the rich young ruler, and he told in the parable of the sower, Those who are in love with the riches of the world, and because of it, many are kept from the kingdom of God, because that becomes their God. And then he says, for the love of money is not the root, but a root of all sorts of evil. Uh, And some, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight to which you recall. Then he will say in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That, that's what the temptation is if you're rich. You begin to think, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty successful. Or you look at all the things that you've acquired and you begin with all, a spirit of arrogance to think that you're better than someone else because of what you own. Uh, But Jesus made it very clear that a man's life does not consist of his riches. Now, that's how we measure people. We measure people by what they own. 
and we say, well, he's been successful. I mean, look at that house and the cars and the prestige that he has. And look at this scumbag over here. I mean, he's a nothing, man. He he lives in a dump, and he drives that beaded-down car. And the reality is, is he may be far richer in eternity than the rich man who has much in this life. And so Jesus made it very clear that uh, you cannot measure a man's life by what he owns, that a man's life does not consist of his riches. And there are two key passages. You might also want to go back and read Luke 12 and Luke 16. In either case, um, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, let me just underscore this verse in light of your question. God is the one who supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if God has supplied you with something, then enjoy it. You don't have to make an excuse for it. If you own a nice suit or a nice pair of shoes, and that's something that God wanted you to have, you don't have to say, well, you know, I got this on sale, and it was half off, and that's why I'm wearing it. Look, don't make any excuses. If God gave it to you to enjoy, then enjoy it, all right? Uh, Don't don't make excuses for it. Let's go to that live caller and see if we can uh, uh, respond very quickly. All right, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Pastor Verogi, good morning, sir. Thank you. Um, my question is this. Um, I, I was away over the weekend, and I was able to watch the sermon when I got back home on, on television. I actually watched it twice. And I've, I've had friends ask me, um, Jesus always had, he had the passage where he said that we would have life and have it abundantly. And people, some of my, some of my friends seem to think that because of that and, and some other verses that, you know, where Jesus had made promises to us, that we were not to suffer. Um, and I, I really understand what you were saying in, in Romans, that we are to suffer, and the other passages that you quoted in your sermon, but I'm not sure how to convey that to my friends in, in, a, in a brief synopsis that I can could, I could make it clear to them that Jesus doesn't promise that we're going to have wondrous things here on earth, that... In, my feeling is that we're to, we're to hate this earth. Am, am I correct in thinking that way, that we are to hate the earth and then look forward to our new home in heaven? Well, I wouldn't say that we should hate this earth. Um, you know, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of earth and citizens of heaven. And some people have gone to extremes where they've totally obliterated their involvement in this life, and they've become ineffective um, in terms of making an impact for Christ. But I only have 30 seconds, so let me encourage you to do this. I did a series of messages. I think it's two or three messages, and there's handouts that are included on the prosperity gospel. And that's really what you're centering on. Uh, What does the Bible say about the prosperity gospel? Well, these people who are preaching the prosperity gospel are preaching a different gospel, another gospel, to use Paul's words. They're preaching another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. And I kind of walk through the verses that they use out of context. And it's amazing the verses that they use. Uh, Some classic ones come out of Job. And when you go back and read them, you actually find that they're coming from the mouths of Job's so-called friends whom the Lord God at the end of the book says he doesn't approve their counsel. Uh, so uh, that might be helpful to listen to those messages. We're out of time for today. Thanks so much for being with us on the Bible line. Hope you have a great day as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ.